studying in 2 Corinthians. We've started at the beginning and we're up to chapter 7 and verse 1 this morning. So we'll be going on from there. If you're using a Schofield Reference Bible, that's on page 1234 in that Bible. But I, I found some things that remind me of how old I'm getting, or some things that I just think have a little humor in it. It says, if you lose a sock in the dryer, it comes back as a Tupperware lid that doesn't fit any of your containers. I don't know if you've experienced that, but I think it's true. Age 60 might be the new 40, but 9 p.m. is the new midnight. That's just the case. I, I can say, look, I can stay up late tonight because <laughs> I don't have to get up tomorrow. But at 9 o'clock, I fall asleep no matter whether I'm going to bed or not. It's just the way it is. When I say the other day, I could be referring to any time between yesterday and 15 years ago. Yeah. And one last thought to make you smile. When one door closes and another door opens, you're probably in prison. It's <laughs> the way of it. All right. Well, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and have prayer, and we'll get started in God's Word, which is much more beneficial. Father in heaven, help us this morning to share in a way that is helpful to people, to hear from you as we read a bit of your Word and think together about the, what it has, not just for the people to whom Paul wrote, but for us as well. For in the same boat, we're all sinners who have been saved because Jesus is very loving, kind, merciful, and gracious. We're saved by his grace, not deserving it, but receiving it as a free gift. Father, help us now to understand and then remember and then act on what we learn and remember. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. It is on the screen, it's in the Bibles. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, generally, I try to get through more of a passage than one verse, but this morning I think we've got one verse here that's going to take us all morning. We'll see. First, I'd like to ask a question. Who is Paul writing to according to this verse? He addresses them with a form of address there. He says, dearly beloved. These are Paul's dearly beloved. Paul, by these words, joins himself to them in the matter in which he's about. He says, let us, right? But he says, dearly beloved. Now, if you just read 1 Corinthians, you might think he didn't much care for the people in Corinth because he was yelling at them a lot and they were doing things wrong and he had to correct them. But here in 2 Corinthians, a lot of things have changed in Corinth and he's more encouraging. He's trying to pick them up. These are his dear children. You might remember from reading in the book of Acts that when Paul first went to Corinth, there was some reception and some resistance, but this is one of the several places where the Lord Jesus himself appeared to Paul, and he said, I've got a lot of people in this city. You just stay put here. This is going to be a good thing. You stay and put up with the resistance and, and go on with it. So this is to the dearly beloved, and I think it's nice to hear Paul address the Corinthians and us that way as well. And then he says, having therefore these promises. Well, the word therefore is there for some reason. When you see therefore, you want to ask yourself, what's it there for? 
And so we should look back and what's he, what is he talking about? These promises. And it, it could go back all the way to the first chapter of this letter. And chapter, whoops, I didn't do that right. Uh, chapter 1, let me just do this again here. Chapter 1 in verse 20, it says, All the promises of God in him, what's that? In Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, there's not yes and no, it's just all yes. All the promises of God in him, in Jesus Christ, are yay, which we think of as a cheer, but it's just yes, yes, and amen, which means I believe it, it's right. Unto the glory of God by us, he says, there's a lot of promises. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, he says, having therefore these promises. I think he's got more specific promises in mind. In chapter 6, where we just finished, excuse me, in verse 2, he says, I have heard thee, he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee, have I helped thee. Now is the accepted time, now is the day of salvation. The first promise I refer to there, if you're using the, looking at the notes, we have the ear of God. He says, I have heard thee. God's listening. We have his, when we pray, He's saying he's heard us. And then he says, in the day of salvation have I succored thee. We don't use succored as a common vocabulary word much anymore, but it really means helped you. I helped you. I gave you what you needed. We have his ear. We have his help. In this same chapter 6 we just finished, we go down to verse 16. He says in the middle of the verse, you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I think those are the promises. Besides his hearing us and helping us, his promise to be as close to us as possible, I will dwell in them. Wow. The very closest presence possible. He doesn't just live with me. He's in me, as Jesus had promised the disciples. And I will walk in them. Even when we're moving, he's not left behind. He's not around the corner. He's right in us. And then he says, and I will be their God. Now, that doesn't just mean I belong to him. This means he belongs to me. This God belongs to me. I will be their God, Bob's God. What a promise. And they shall be my people. That's, I belong to him. <laughs> He's in us. He's in us even when we're walking. He's mine. I'm his. In verse 17, the very last phrase of it says, I will receive you. That's nice. That's just like what Jesus said in John chapter 14 in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I will receive you. This is a promise of a reception. We're going to have an event. Whether it's death or the rapture, we're going to have an event. And after the event, there's a reception. <laughs> You're going to come, make sure you come to the reception after the event. You know, Jesus says, I'll receive you. There's a reception. It's good reception. No static, it's clear reception, right? The best of connections. And then he says in verse 18, 
and will be a father unto you. Well, we're not just along for the ride. We're in the family. We have a place in the family, and God himself is the father. We're the children. We're the sons and daughters of God the Father. And the rest of the verse, you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty says, I'm his boy. I'm his girl. Isn't that nice? Aren't those the promises that chapter 7 refers back to? I think so. Having, therefore, these promises, dearly beloved, now, again, what's the therefore? Let us, because of these promises, because of all this rich promise, let us. That's a lot like saying, do this, but it's nicer, you know? Kids, clean up the yard. That works. Hey, kids, let's go get that yard cleaned up. That's nicer. Paul's joining in this. In the notes, you can see it's called a grammatical form called a hortatory subjunction. Hortatory, like in the word exhortation, we're encouraging somebody to do something. A subjunctive means it's not actually happened yet. You hope it happens. It's a possibility. It's the mood of possibility rather than actuality. Let us. Now, when you tell somebody, go do it, that's another mood. That's the imperative mood. That's just a command. But this is a soft way of delivering a command. When you see let us, when you see let us, as we saw there at the beginning of our lesson, got to go back to that verse There's somewhere here. I've lost my mind. Just a second. That's, there it is. I didn't know it would do that. Let us. It's used, let us, right there, 37 times by Paul. 13 of those 37 times are in the book of Hebrews. Now, some people try to say, we don't really know Paul wrote Hebrews. John uses this three times. Luke uses it three times. Jesus says, let us, 11 times. Paul says it. 37 times, or if you don't count Hebrews, 24 times, and 13 times in the book of Hebrews by, I think, Paul. Because that's a sign of his writing. It's something that he says, and not very many other people use it a bunch. It's another evidence that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. There's more than that, but that's a good indicator, isn't it? Let us. Paul uses that. Let us do what? Let us cleanse ourselves cleanse ourselves. I wrote out the Greek word in English letters there, katharizomen. That omen ending is the first person plural. That's the us. Let us do this thing. Let us. Do what? Get clean. It's a word for cleansing, purifying, purging. Now in modern speech, catharsis is when you vent verbally. It's cathartic. It gets, gets the anger off your chest or something. But it really was a word that meant cleansing or purifying. And we should do this together. Cleanse ourselves. I wrote that as the title of this. Let's get clean. We've got a wonderful bunch of promises. 
we've got a promise of a reception in heaven with a father that's God and he's our God and we're his. And he says, clean up. Let us, not just get clean, don't jump in. He says, let us cleanse ourselves. From what? From all filthiness, defilement, stain, pollution. Often it's immorality. But physical dirt, moral dirt, dirt. Get clean. Cleanse ourselves from filthiness. I don't know. I suppose most of you, if not all of you, have a mother or had a mother. <laughs> I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. I just believe it. And your mother knew what the word filthy meant. And she used it on you now and again, didn't she? I remember I, I was a boy who did not care very much for shoes when I was young. And so run around outside barefoot all the time. And then when it was time to go inside, there was a brief period of a week or so that my parents were gone and my grandmother was minding the store, running the house. And she saw me headed for her inside the house, clean living room rug and all, and saw my feet. And she intercepted me at the door, reversed my course and took me out to the laundry tubs in the utility room and put me in there and took a scrub brush. I believe it was a steel wire brush, I'm not sure. But she scrubbed me until I was cleansed of all filthiness of the flesh. I didn't care for that, but I do remember it. And so I still didn't wear shoes. That was my, my choice. Filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Well, that's something. There's two kinds of filthiness here. Of the flesh, the commentators say that means external pollution, outside stuff, defilement by outward actions. What can you do on the outside? Well, your tongue is specifically named as a source of dirt on the outside, isn't it? James talks about the tongue. I don't have the cross-reference here, but he says the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, setting on, the, it just sets on fire. It's awful. The tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil. Here's some things you might have heard about. Hopefully they're not part of your lifestyle, but impure words, dirty words, foolish talking, rotten or corrupt communication. My wife and I, and now my daughter, have all been teachers in, Christian, in schools. I tried not to teach elementary school. I really worked at it. I did teach fifth grade one year, but I don't like fifth graders. I really don't. I just don't like fifth graders. If you're a fifth grader, I'm sorry. You will be one someday, and then you'll know why nobody likes fifth graders. But that's no, that, that's a thing everybody goes through. After you're done in fifth grade, you get to be a middle school person, and that's worse. But in any case, um, we don't say certain things when you're in a teaching position. You don't use words that the children are not supposed to use. I was shocked the other day when my daughter was visiting me, and she said, sometimes I just tell them to shut up. And my wife and I reared back and said, you use the S word, shut up. But she says it gets her attention. I don't know. We didn't do that. We said nice things. Please be quiet. I did teach a junior high study hall, seventh and eighth graders mixed together the period after physical education for both of those groups. And so is Alabama, lower Alabama, 
and it's stinking hot outside, and they've been outside in the heat, and they come into my big room, and they're quite noisy. And I don't yell at them or anything, I just go and turn the air conditioners off. And after a while, one of them toddle up to my desk and say, Mr. Gilbert, Mr. Gilbert, can we turn the air conditioners on? I said, you gonna get quiet? And that becomes an apostle of, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, going around the room, getting everybody, using the bad words, but getting everybody quiet so that Mr. Gilbert would consider turning on the air conditioning for their greater comfort. So you, do, you don't have to yell at them. Just, it's just the way it is. But rotten communication shouldn't be a part of what is in our mouths. We, it's a part of the filthiness of the flesh. Other filthiness of the flesh, the body we can think of, you know, there's idolatry. I don't have any idols. Oh yeah? Between noon and 3.30 yesterday afternoon, what did you do? How many watched Michigan play Ohio State? How many were happy? I was. So, wouldn't have any idols. No, right, yeah, okay. Something you pay more attention to than what you should be paying attention to. But I don't worship them, right. Adultery, fornication, incest, sodomy, murder, drunkenness, revelings, External pollutions, filthiness of the flesh. He says, Let's, let us cleanse ourselves from these things. And then he says, and of the spirit. There are internal pollutions, defilement, internal acts of the minds, evil thoughts. While I never say those words, I just think them. Oh, lust. You do recall what Jesus said comparing adultery and lust, thinking on a woman to lust after. He says, that's just the same. Now, it's not just the same. But Jesus said it was. That's a little hyperbole in his speech. There, there's a difference between calling somebody a fool, or against, uh, between hating somebody and actually killing them, but Jesus said they were the same kind of thing. These are filthiness of the spirit. Pride. Pride is a bad thing. Pride. I'm so proud of, well, if it's not Jesus you're proud of, that's probably not as good. Malice. What is malice? Malice I call cold anger. There's an old saying that says revenge is a dish best served cold, and I don't think it's a good idea, but it's in the list here. Envy, I sure wish I was. Covetousness. Now, my note next says, not that any man or any believer has power in and of himself to do this, this cleaning up, but he should avail himself of the remedies proposed by Paul and by John in other places. Let's look at some of those where he says how to do this. In Romans chapter 6, this is page 1198 if you're following in a Schofield Bible. Romans 6 verse 11, I think this is one of the most practical 
practical passages in the, the New Testament. In verse 8, I'll back up a couple verses. If we be dead with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. He's not going to die again. Death hath no more dominion over him. He died, he died unto sin once, in that he liveth, he liveth unto God likewise. What? Just like that, like that. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. When God looks at you and your sin, he sees Jesus dying on the cross under the weight of your sin. The sin has been died for. Jesus is not going to die for it anymore. It's done. It's done. He lives unto God. He says, now look, the same way God looks at Jesus and your sin, you look at yourselves the same way. Likewise, reckon, account, put it down in your mind, in the, in the accounting book in your mind, that you're dead to sin. And put it down the way God sees you. You're alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you would just see yourself the way God sees you, you wouldn't choose to sin. Reckon yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not, therefore, sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lesser of. Don't let it. Don't let it. Verse 13, neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Don't give in. Yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. Remember how God sees you? You died when Jesus died, and now you're raised from the dead. Yield yourselves to God. Yield your members as instruments of, run, of righteousness unto God. You're not under the law. You're under grace. What a wonderful, encouraging passage, and it all starts with the truth about Jesus, and then we get this instruction. You think about yourselves this way, the way God thinks about you, dead to sin, alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The way you think about yourself controls to a great degree what you do with yourself. Think the way God thinks. And we look on to another passage in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, this is page 1222. We read this month by month and we come to observe the Lord's Supper. It's right after this recitation of the Lord's Supper. We're showing the Lord's death till he come as often as we eat the bread and drink this cup. And then he says in verse 27, wherefore whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. <clears throat> it does not say unworthy because nobody is worthy of Jesus' body and blood, but unworthily means in an unworthy manner. In English, most words that end in L-Y are adverbs. They are talking about the action of the verb. If you do this in an unworthy manner, eat and drink in an unworthy manner, you'll be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And then he says, here's how to fix that. Let a man examine himself, and then let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. He that eateth and drinketh in an unworthy manner, eateth and drinketh condemnation to himself. Doesn't mean you're going to go to hell, but it's a judgment coming if you don't, don't get this right. If you eat and drink, if you take the Lord's Supper, and while you're doing it, you're just daydreaming. 
while you're doing it, you're not taking advantage of the opportunity to examine yourself. He that eateth and drinketh in an unworthy manner, you get some judgment coming. Verse 30 says, for this cause, because you people are being dumb, not you people, but the people he's writing to in Corinth, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Well, that explains what the condemnation was there in the previous verse. Weak, sick, and that's died. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. You mean they even died? Yeah, but that's, you know, that's not the worst thing that can happen to you. Somebody said, when the worst thing that can happen to you is the best thing that can happen to you, you can live easier. If we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. When we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Now, a young person ought to know what the word chastened means because it means spanked, swatted, disciplined in the physical manner. We are disciplined of the Lord. He's going to get our attention so that we're not condemned with the world. There's some practical advice there. Judge yourself to avoid the necessity for the Father's chastening hand. Occasionally when my young children were young children and not in their middle ages as they are now, I would catch one of them doing something that required discipline. And I recall saying this to my son one time. I said, you should be glad that daddy caught you. And he says, why should I be glad? Because I said, because God spanks harder than I do. And I meant it. I can't discipline him as well as God can, but I try. Another practical passage, Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. This is page 1247. If we live in the Spirit, Paul says, let us, there's that let us again, it's a soft command, let us also walk in the Spirit. You've got life you live in the Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in you. So when you're moving your feet, do it in coordination with the Spirit of God. Walk in the Spirit. You got life in the Spirit, so let's walk that way. It wasn't just Paul that gave this kind of practical advice. The Apostle John also, and this is a passage very familiar, chapter 1 of 1 John, page 1321, and to go on to the next page as well, page 1 John chapter 1, he says, if we walk, well, that's, we're supposed to walk in the Spirit. We're supposed to walk in the light. In him is light, and in him is no darkness at all, it said in verse 5. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship. We have things in common one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's a very positive thing. In verse 9, he says, if we confess our sins, agree with God, it's not a ritual. There's a woman back in the book of Proverbs that tried to entice a young man to sin with her, and she said, I have this day paid my vows. Come and let us take our fill of love. No, that's not love. That's, as Dr. Stanford used to say, that's lust. And the poor kids don't know the difference. But 
you can't say, I know this is sin, but I'll confess it. Now, that's not confessing. Confessing is agreeing with God about the nature of what you'd already done. You can't plan to sin, and, and you still need to confess it. But confessing it isn't just saying, yeah, there I go again. Oh, well, God, do you care? I've been doing this every day for a while now. That's not confession. Confessing is agreeing with God, and he will faithfully, faithfully forgive Jesus was asked, how many times do we have to forgive? Seven times? And he said, not seven times. He said, 70 times, seven times. And the Father is a very faithful Father to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But confession is not going to a priest somewhere in a little closet and saying, how can I fix this? What do I need to do to pay for my sin? Well, we'll go recite prayers. That's not confession of sin. That's a ritual planning to sin again, I think. But anyway, confession of sin. The next phrase in this verse that we started here, I can't find it now. There it is. I just learned a new tool. In chapter 7 and verse 1, I thought I did it. What happened? There it is. Here's our verse that we started with. After cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, the phrase is perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Well, that's a strong, strong phrase. I quoted a commentator. I don't always do this, but in the notes it says this from John Gill in the middle 1700s. He is to be carrying on a course of righteousness and holiness to the end. To the end of his life, he is to persevere in faith and so in holiness. As he is to go on believing in Christ, so he is to go on to live soberly, righteously, and godly to the end of his days. Now that's a good challenge in spite of him being a little bit of a Calvinist there. The right thing to do is this perfecting holiness, carrying on a course of righteousness all the way to the end. Keep going this way. The word perfecting is to fulfill further, <laughs> to fulfill further, to bring all the way to the end. Sometimes we want to try to explain the word savior to people, and we, we just pick on one of our friends, like James is an excellent swimmer, and he was out on a deep-sea fishing boat in the Gulf of Mexico about 20 miles offshore, and he leaned over to pet a dolphin and tumbled head over heels into the Gulf of Mexico, and the boat went on its way without him. Now, he's 20 miles out in the Gulf of Mexico, and he's really not a very good swimmer, but, but Yankee came along with his boat, and Yankee's a good boat driver, I, I can prove that, got evidence of that. He came along with his boat, and he saw James there going, blah, 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 and Yankee says, do you need help? And James says, and so Yankee comes over, and he reaches into his supply of literature, and he pulls out a book that says 10 easy lessons on how to swim. And he says, here, tosses it out to James, and says, read that, and do that, whatever it says, long enough and hard enough, and you'll make it. And Yankee drives off. Did he save him? No, he didn't get him anywhere near shore. 
Well, he feels bad about it because he comes back, and, and Yankee is an excellent swimmer, so he jumps into the water right next to James, and he says, watch, watch, this, I'll show you how to do it. And he shows him the side stroke and the back stroke and the breast stroke and the Australian crawl and all these different ways of swimming. And he said, now you do that, just like I showed you, and you'll be okay. Was he a savior? He was an example, maybe, a teacher, not a savior. Well, James is going down for the third time, blah, 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 blah. The Yankee comes up with the boat one more time, and he says, come here. He gets down in the water. He brings him over to the edge of the boat, heists him up onto the boat. That's quite a job. And uh, dries him off, gives him some hot tea, and heads for shore. And he gets to where he's about 10 miles from shore, and he says, James, why are you just laying there in that blanket drinking hot tea? This boat needs to be, that deck needs to be swabbed. That brass needs to be polished. What good are you? You're not doing me any good. And he throws him off the boat. Was he a savior? Now, he might be a probation officer. <laughs> Guys in prison understand that. They, they're, they're safe when they get out, unless they mess up again, and then they go back in. But Jesus isn't like Yankee. Well, he's a little like Yankee. But Jesus gets us up out of our mess and takes us safely all the way to shore. A Savior takes us all the way to the end. And he can do that because he paid for our sin entirely. He did it all the way to the end. Now we're in, encouraged here to perfect holiness, having cleansed ourselves to keep on fulfilling more fully, more further, all the way to the end, holiness, which is a word that's hard to define. Another word like it is purity. Anytime you want to try to define those words, you usually use a negative, not sinful, not dirty, not bad. But the words themselves, the only thing you can say is, well, it's, it's like God is. Holiness, all good, all good, all pure. Perfecting that, bring it to maturity. There's a place where Paul uses that idea about us. In, oh. e in Ephesians chapter 4, page 1253, he says, this is why God gave gifted men to the church. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting the bringing to maturity, the equipping, if you will. It's like, let's go down to the armory and get ourselves our equipment for the battle, for the equipping or the perfecting of the saints because they're the ones that do the work of the ministry. You say, well, that's the Sunday school teacher's job. That's the preacher's job. No, it's the saint's job, and that's everybody that's believed in Jesus. We get our equipment. We get our weapons of war from the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers out of the book, our armory. And when we get mature enough, as soon as we got our equipment, we go out and do the work of the ministry. It says to the edifying of the body of Christ. The believers make up the body of Christ. He's the head, we're the body. And edifying means to build up. A big building is called an edifice. When you edify something, you either add material to it or you strengthen it. We edify the body of Christ either by adding more believers 
or by strengthening the believers that are already in. Edifying the body of Christ in verse 13 says, Until we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, the fulfilly, fully fulfilled man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal. Let's get to this end. There's another passage Paul uses a similar idea in Philippians, page 1260, Philippians chapter 3. That's not Philippians chapter 3. All right, so I messed up my bookmark. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says this, he says, Not as though I had already attained, Either we're already perfect. I haven't come to the fully fulfilled place yet. I'm not quite complete. I follow after. I'm hot on the heels of my example. If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. <clears throat> he says, I'm following Jesus. I'm not caught up to him yet, but I know where he's going and I'm going after him. In verse 13, he says, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I'm not there yet. I have not arrived. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm pushing for this. I'm pushing for it. I'm pushing for it. And then in verse 15, he says, Let us... He's including the people he writes to. As many as be perfect, if you're mature at all, be thus minded. Think the way I think. And if anything, you be otherwise minded, God will reveal even this to you. God will fix you. You're wrong. I'll, you'll get it right eventually. Yeah. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, page 1268, Paul said to those Thessalonian believers, he said, the Lord make you to increase, get bigger, and abound in love, more love, one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Why do, loving one another, that's like Jesus commanded. Why do they have to love all men? Because they're lost and they need to be saved. To the end, he says, here's the goal that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul says this is what we're working toward. Get on track, push toward the end, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It wasn't just Paul. Peter also, Peter also wrote about it like this. 1 Peter 5.10, page 13.15. Peter wrote to the church at large he wrote but the God of all grace who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after that you have suffered a while make you perfect make you complete make you finished make you mature establish and strengthen and settle you he says that's my prayer and that's what's going to have now the very last phrase in the verse we started with perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Just a few verses to look at here. All the way back in the Psalms, 
the fear of God. Psalm 19, verse 9, page 607, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is what will clean you up. You know, it's a, it's a phrase that we don't use so much anymore, fear of the Lord, but it's a good phrase. It's the idea of the attitude a child has toward his father. Are you afraid of your father? Well, I hope not in shivering in terror kind of fear, but He's big and you're not. And God is big and we're not. And we owe him trust and respect and reverence and a little bit of fear. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It's used repeatedly in the, the Psalms and in the Proverbs. We look a little bit in the Proverbs here. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13 this is page 677. The fear of the Lord is, here's a way to define it, to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. I don't know how I should fear God. Well, try hating evil, especially your own pride and arrogancy and your mouth when it goes sideways, the evil way. In chapter 14 of the Proverbs, it says this, says in verse 27 the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death a fountain of life it's, it's a good way to be in in chapter 19 and verse 23 one of my favorite verses in the whole of the Proverbs it says the fear of the Lord tendeth to life and he that hath it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. A lot of people have a Christian life that's a bit like a roller coaster. They go to the mountaintop and, woo, it's exciting. And then they're down in the valley and it creeps back up again for a while. And then they get to another little mountaintop and, woo, it's, it's up and down in joy and then messed up and depressed. But this doesn't describe that that way. This says, the fear of the Lord tendeth to life. And he that hath it shall Abide, satisfied. The whole ride is good. Abide, satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. We got just a minute or two left. Second Chronicles 19, verse 9. Second Chronicles, we never had a verse in Chronicles before. Well, you have to get the papers separated there. Second Chronicles chapter 19. It's on page 2. 507 if you want to use a page number and this is the charge that the priest gave them he charged them saying thus shall you do in the fear of the Lord faithfully and with a perfect heart that word perfect keeps coming up doesn't it in the New Testament the phrase the fear of the Lord isn't used so very often but in Acts chapter 9 in Acts chapter 9 describing the situation of the church toward the end of this period where Saul had been through and gone down. He's the apostle now, but he hasn't gone out on his journeys yet. And he's gone home to Tarsus where he came from. And it says in verse 31, then had the churches rest. What had been going on before Saul's conversion to Paul? He'd been persecuting the church, but now he's gone 
He's a believer and his, he's no longer leading the opposition. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. One last promise. One last promise from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Near the end of the book of Hebrews, verse 28, page 1304. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. Let's have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. We're in the body of Christ. We're headed for a heavenly home. God's going to receive us, and we're going to receive with him a kingdom. And it's not a movable kingdom. It's a permanent one. He says, let's just focus on, let us have grace. Let us be all about grace. With grace, we can serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Do you know that is what makes our message different. It is this idea of salvation by the grace of God. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Every religion in the world says, do, 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 do. But Jesus died on the cross, said, it is finished, Jesus says, done, done, it's done. And all anyone can do is have faith in his wonderful grace, and the gift of salvation, without works, without works. And that's how we serve God as well. You have to work at it. But we emphasize the message of grace so that God will be pleased as lost people understand his great salvation. You pray with me. Father in heaven, as we've stumbled through this verse in Scripture here today, we pray that some of the message would be helpful and useful to the people listening. And if there's anyone listening who is still on the outside and doesn't know this truth of salvation by grace through faith, they'd think about what Jesus did on the cross. They probably heard he did it for them, but he really did pay for sin done. And his promise is, whosoever believeth in me should not perish, but have everlasting life. Help them to choose right now to think this through and believe in Jesus, whose name we pray.